Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. This week, I am so excited to have the fabulous Maureen Wilson from this speech bubble or the speech bubble SLP. You might know her from Teachers Pay Teachers or Instagram where she has lots of fabulous resources. And she also is the creator of the Swivel Scheduler, which is an amazing resource for school SLPs. But before we begin, I want to go ahead and report our financial disclosures. I'm Caitlin Lopez, the podcast host for This Speech Life. And my financial disclosure is I do receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com for hosting this episode. I have no relevant non-financial disclosures to report. And... All right. Maureen Wilson, she is, like I mentioned, the creator of Swivel Scheduler, and she also has courses, or uh, excuse me, she has materials on Teachers Pay Teachers, and she receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for being a guest on today's episode. All right, now that those things are out of the way, if you don't know who Maureen Wilson is, I am so excited to introduce you to her. She is a school-based speech-language pathologist in a K-5 elementary school since 2009. She's the author and owner of the Speech Bubble SLP, a blog for SLPs and Teachers Pay Teachers store where she creates resources focusing on literacy-based therapy, data collection, and language materials. Marina is also the creator and owner of Swivel Scheduler, a web-based data collection app that supports school SLPs with goal management and data collection so they can focus on their students and enjoy their jobs again. All right, Maureen, we are so excited that you have agreed to join us today to talk about all things goal writing. So why don't we just jump right in? What are three things that SLPs need to know about goal writing? Well, thank you so much for having me. And I could talk about goal writing for days, which sounds probably terribly nerdy. When it comes to goal writing, what I've seen over the course of the years and just questions I get I would say you need to have your baseline. You need to make sure that your goal is written for the skill, not your plan. And you need to make sure that you are attaching all data collection documents to the IEP. All right. Awesome. So when it comes to baseline, what I know we have a lot of newer SLPs and even grad students and CFYs that are listening What do you mean by baseline and what are things that you do to get that baseline? So by a baseline, I'm talking about we have gone through an evaluation or maybe it's their next annual review. You've done some screenings and determined what their next goal is going to be. Then before you even put it down in the IEP, 
You need to go and just give that student a quick little five to 10 trial. And that's your baseline where they start. This way, you know where they're improving from. This also helps you to create what they're going to achieve. So we've all heard of SMART goals. We all know the SMART acronym and everything, but I call it BSMART. So I have BSMART goals because the B stands for baseline. So we may have a student who is working on categorizing. And if we just put in that they'll achieve, you know, 70%, well, what's that coming from? We don't know how much growth has been made if we don't have a baseline in your objective and your goal. So that's why we go in and we do this ahead of time. So we can put in our goal that they're going to go from, say, 50% to 70% what we're hoping for over the course of that IEP year. If we don't have that and you don't have it, having it cited in your present levels is still necessary. But if you don't have it in the goal, it weakens your goal in terms of its legally defensiveness because we haven't stated in there where they're achieving from. And when they're looking and breaking everything down, it's going to be missing this factor, which could then cause some more turmoil into probably an already uh, problematic situation. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's a really good point to bring up about it being legally defensible for, because we know SMART goals, like we've heard the SMART acronym, but the baseline, I love that, that you have be smart. You know, we know baseline, but it's almost like, at least for my years in the school system and things that I've, you know, seen and IEPs that I've inherited, the baseline almost seems to be this afterthought of like, Oh, okay. Well, I'll figure that out after the first session with the new goal or. Right. And it's like, no, you need to do it before you even start. Because what I see, especially at the beginning of the school year, there's people posting in Facebook groups for, Hey, how do you collect baseline data? Hey, I need some baseline data for the beginning of the year. And actually you don't, you already got it when you wrote the goal. So when you're starting your year, you're just picking up where you left off. You're not getting a baseline for the goal. You might be getting a base for your new school year to see how they lost any of the skill, but you're not getting your baseline for the goal. It's just picking up where you left off. And when we're getting our baseline, it is nothing fancy. I literally take a post-it, jot down some questions or some prompts or whatnot beforehand. I ask the kid to come out of class for probably about maybe two to five minutes, boom, boom, boom. I have my baseline and we're done until I start to see them formally. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have a fancy screener. You don't have to have some type of, you know, preset, pre-made baseline criteria. You need to follow it as you would how the goal is stated when you're presenting your baseline. If you have in the goal that they get an additional prompt or cue before it's marked incorrect, well, then you need to be able to, to do that when you're giving your baseline so it's accurate. But after you have it, then you just move forward. So beginning of the year when everyone's like, I need baseline stuff. It's like, well, you already did it. Yeah. You don't need to the wheel there. That's a great point. And like you said, you know, if you have a new student that's coming on your caseload that you assessed for, or even students that their annual IEPs are coming up, there's oftentimes I'll pull them or keep them just a little bit, you know, in out of class, like, hey, can you stay back just a minute before you go back and let me try some things with you? 
And it's, it's true. Like I was getting baseline data from them, but I wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, this is the baseline that I'm going to put in the goal. And I didn't necessarily think of it as a process of goal writing, you know, within the SMART goal acronym. I was just thinking in terms of like, what am I going to do next with you? (laughs) You know, and which kind of brings me to my next, like, or your next point that I really loved of you're writing the goal for the skill, not the type of therapy you're going to do, not, you know, like you do a lot of literacy-based therapy. So you're not writing the goal for a literacy-based activity. You're writing the goal for a skill. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Oh, definitely. So we'll take that literacy-based example and go with that. I'm a very strong proponent of literacy-based therapy. I feel it's that connection between the speech room and the classroom that our kids need to really help that generalization and carryover rather than I only do this with my speech person or I do this with my classroom teacher. So a lot of the times during assessments and whatnot, I might see that the student has a weak narrative language structure. Well, if they have weak narrative language, their ability to tell stories, comprehend stories, and all that comes with it is low, which is when we hear they can't answer questions in the classroom, they don't know how to ask questions, they can't remember details, everything that goes with it. So I might write a goal for improving narrative language. And that's my goal is that I actually will use a rubric to follow this format, not percentages. When we get into language skills that are layered, that you know, there's more than just you got it right or you didn't. If you are sitting there and you're like, hmm, how do I get a percentage for this? If you're asking yourself that question, it should be a rubric. So with the rubric, you can break down all the different criteria that fit within that skill. So we know with narrative language, they need to be able to have the different criteria for a story, character, setting, problem, and so on. They need to have it chronologically ordered. We're expecting proper verb transitions and all that stuff. So we can put that into a rubric as a rating. Now, I'm going to write my goal that they're going to score a certain amount on this narrative rubric. That's my goal. I'm writing that they're going to achieve a rating from a one to a three because I have my baseline in there. So my goal is they do it for three. And that might be that they can basically tell the majority of the story themselves. They need a little bit of help. Maybe they need an organizer and so on. I'm not writing my goal that they'll get it a level two. I'm not writing my goal that they're going to be able to state the different story grammar elements. That's part of what we're going to do get there. That's not my objective that I'm going to be taking data on. I'm going to be taking data on can they do this and how well based on the details of the rubric, not all the little steps I get to. And I think we see a lot in IEPs. And one of the reasons we get so overwhelmed about goal writing is we're trying to basically write a goal for everything that we're planning to do when you don't need to. So if we think about that categorizing goal, Well, at the end of an IEP year, our hope would be that if we give our student a particular group, they can tell us some items in it, maybe vice versa. And I will just say those would need to be two separate goals. You can't smash them. I call it goal smashing. It's like if Hulk got a hold of them and just went to town, don't do it. We wouldn't put in our objective that they're going to match categories to objects with 70% accuracy. And then they're going to be able to sort categories into objects. 
with 60% accuracy, that's part of your plan. That's not your goal. And so we tend to write too many goals because we're trying to list out what we need to do. If that's how your brain works and you're like, all right, how am I my steps to get there? Put a post-it in there and jot down what your plan is going to be. But your objective is going to be for categorizing or stating categories or putting items into category. You don't need to state the steps. And then you can avoid the whole, I have objectives for this one kid and there's too many. A question that I do have for you, because this is really great. I love your idea of like the Hulk smash goal. I know one of my grad professors years ago called them Franken goals. <laughs> it was like pieces of the, you know, all these yeah. different skills. I mean, I'm still inheriting goals like that now. And I mm-hmm. see it and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you yeah. know? So I guess the question that I have for you, which is one, one of my clinical instructors did things this way. And then our professor that graded our comprehensive exams, she also wanted us to do things this way. Uh, this idea of like your annual goal. Mm -hmm. is let's say it's compare and contrast like items. So Mm -hmm. in order to do that, our short-term objective, she would say, you know, short-term objective, list object function for 20 items. Mm -hmm. Short-term objective, list, you know, be able to sort items by object function. You know, this idea of, so is that kind of what you're saying as well, that it's okay within your short-term objectives to kind of list those steps of how you would get to that overarching goal? It depends on what you're looking for. It depends on your setting. I find in a school setting, that's not really practical because we're working on, you know, your long-term objective might be for expressive language, which then you refine down within that long-term objective as being, you know, maybe it's narrative language. Maybe it's building simple sentences. Well, So within that long-term objective, you're stating the areas you're going to work on. Now down in your short-term objectives, you're listing all those out. So I'm going to have that goal for narrative language and for simple sentences. I'm not going to list out my plan. I had the same thing in grad school. They're like, okay, your goal is going to be for, you know, like you said, comparing and contrasting. Now you have to list out how to get there. And I think because, you know, I haven't been in grad school in a very long time, (laughs) I kind of feel like that type of methodology has just not shifted and hasn't shifted to really what's functional. And because of that, we're stuck in this cycle of you need to write a goal for every step you're going to make. And we get stuck in that. And it's hard for us then to understand what the goal should be. And then we get overwhelmed. So if you're in a clinic in a grad school and that's what your professor wants, follow your professor's instructions. When you get to your placements in the real world and you're doing your externships and practicums, see how that functions compared to what is actually done. So I know clinics operate differently. They have different billing and I know billing can drive a lot of it, but yeah, the the way of here's your comparing and contrast goal, because typically we're not going to write that in a school setting. We're going to have a couple of things. Right, right. Yeah. And it was my CF at the school setting that was also like, okay, here's your overarching goal. And then your Mm -hmm. short-term objectives need to be the smaller skills Mm -hmm. to meet that bigger skill. 
so yeah, I think that's really helpful because I, like you said, you know, it's, you take a skill and then your therapy to match the skill can be, you're not writing the goal for the therapy or those things that you're working on. You're writing the goal for the overarching. So I think that's really helpful for, for everyone, not just newer SLPs to hear that. Mm Mm-hmm. The other thing that you've started to talk about, you talked about rubric, and I think that your question of should I use a rubric or not is such a good question of how do I get the percentage of this? Or maybe even how do I take data on this skill? Oh, and this is my favorite. <laughs> yes. And I. this is the whole reason why I reached out to you for goal writing is I really love your rubrics and I've been using them for a while now. And so I wanted you to really dive into rubrics for us, which I think might be one of your resources that you're going to be sharing with us. So it's a good... It is. Well, get your scuba gear on because we're going to go on a deep dive. So I didn't really know this was an option of data collection for me. It was never discussed in grad school. I thought that's just not what SLPs do. We just deal with percentages and that's that. And it wasn't until I probably had been working maybe two years and I got to go to a social thinking conference with our SPED staff. And I was there and all of a sudden they started talking about rubrics. And I remember thinking, that's so weird. Why is she talking about a rubric? And thinking like, oh, maybe she's going to talk about how you get a percentage. And as they discussed it, I was like, this is a valid method of data collection for me? Since when? This is amazing. And it really was this light bulb moment that I had realized when I got back to school and I had a student who I was working on with pragmatics and struggling with how do I write a goal for this? And, you know, think about it, where you've been with goals and especially social language. If you have ever tried to write a goal for topic maintenance and tried to put it in as a percentage If you've ever tried to collect a percentage for topic maintenance in a session, you know it's not possible to do it accurately. So what we do is we shift to a rubric idea. And yes, this is a valid method of data collection. Anytime you're writing a goal and you have to think, hmm, how do I get the percentage for this? Abandon the percentage. You need to use a rubric instead. You need to break the skill down to its components And then you basically baby step it up and you build it. There's a couple different styles of rubrics. I use a ratings type of rubric and then there's a multi-description rating type of rubric. We've probably seen them both. So mine would have a rating of one to four and in each rating it says what the skill looks like at that stage. So you're going to have the good, the bad, and the ugly all in there, but it's all necessary. So if we'll take, I'm kind of like stuck on categorizing for a reason today, but if we take that categorizing skill and we say, okay, at, you know, rating of one, the student is unable to match items to categories. They're unable to sort items into like groups. They're unable to name categories. There are all these things that they can't do and the amount of support that they're going to need. You know, they need consistent prompts and cues and visuals and modeling and all of these things, manipulatives. Well, then we get to rating two. And now the student can match. I would expect that student after we work together that they can match and they can sort items 
And maybe it's they can sort items by color, by size, but they can sort items into different groups. They still need some support, but maybe not constant. Maybe it's just moderate now. Maybe they need three prompts or cues, but they still need the visuals and so on. You get to the next rating and it builds until you get to your rating of a, I have, I do a one to four scale. It's just easier for me. I find when it comes to breaking goals down, you can start at one end or the other and you basically work your way in, you baby step it in. If we go to a five point rating scale, it's almost too stretched out because then you're like, okay, well, what, what would this look like? But that's kind of the beauty of a rubric is you can do half points. You can say, okay, well, maybe they're at the rating of a three, but they still need the support of a rating of a two. Then you put two and a half and you just detail why. So it's this whole new method of validation for us that we can, this is actually feasible data. It's quick. It's easy. It actually makes goal writing really fast because the framework for it is very easy but it's easy to get collaboration from a teacher. They use rubrics all day long. You can ask them, hey, where's Johnny on this? Oh, he's a two. Okay, done. You can email the rubric to them and ask them for their answer. And when we're talking to parents, if we're saying, okay, he's at a two and a half, and you can just copy and paste the text from that rubric into your report, so that way we're being consistent. And that makes more sense to parents when they have this description than 60% okay, what is 60% on categorizing? What does that look like? That's functionality. What does that mean for my kid? And honestly, I didn't really think a lot about that until I had a kid. And now that my son, he's going into first grade, I'm like, well, I want to know, you know, it says, okay, he's doing good in reading or he needs to improve in this. And I was like, well, what does that look like? This gives description to parents, which is clear, concise. And when it comes to you know, if we're looking at things from a legally defensive angle, it is very spelled out in black and white what is expected at each level. So there's no guessing. So some people might argue that it's a very subjective way to take data, where on the other hand, it's extremely objective because there is specific criteria for each level that we are anticipating for the student. So, and if they, like I said, the two and a half, you can easily write down why and you can base it on the objective qualifications for each rating. Now, there's some styles of rubrics that are, I call them multi-description, and that's where we might see our categorization skill, but it might have matching as one, sorting as one, almost broken down into different levels. And then those levels almost have points, like one, two, three. And you would almost, almost like on a graph, you follow it and you match up where they fall for each one and you're looking at a total sum at the end. So we would want maybe a total of nine for them to do this. You know, would be perfect. And as you're going through, maybe their baseline's at a three. So you write your goal for maybe a six. And that's fine for some people. They like it broken down like that right away. I find that it's just takes more time. So <laughs> for the sake of time, I prefer a, just a basic rating style. I have my session with my student I can spend the whole time focusing on them and what they need. And then we're done. I pick up my rubric. I'm like, okay, I look at my ratings. Where did they fall? What did we do? It's here. Boom, done. It literally takes that much time. And the nice thing is once you write a rubric, you're done. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. You can easily copy and paste it and tweak it for a different student for that skill. But you're not having to write it over and over and over again. So... 
I feel like this is something that I don't know if it's like some secret grad school doesn't want us to know yet or anything, but it's a completely acceptable form of data collection that actually takes away a lot of stress and lets you focus on your kids is more detailed and descriptive for families. So, and you know, staff understand it as well. Administration understand it as well. It is used in billing, some billing, they only accept a percentage. So you, I do want to be very clear, rubrics are not a percentage and should never be reported in your report to parents and whatnot as a percentage, but some billing services will only, they'll only give you a percentage box. So in that case, you could write, they got a two out of four, which would convert to a 50%. But then in the notes area, you would state they got a rating of a two out of four on the categorization rubric, let's say. So that way we're consistent with what we're actually doing. But yeah, it's opened up so many doors and has really made so many more things clear about how language should be tracked. Because there comes a point where it's not, you got it right or you got it wrong anymore. It's just too complex. It's too layered. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale? You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical. Win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com for more information on earning graduate level credits. I would 100% agree with you. And just a couple years in, I think same kind of thing, like two years in, I was like, this this is not working for my students. I worked in SDC or self-contained. I know we have people all over the country who call it different things. Yeah. Special day class or self-contained classrooms only. And they were pretty complex students that I was working with. And I wanted to capture everything that the student was doing and not just a, like you said, not just the, well, how do you say it was 50%, you know, mm-hmm. or, or how do I explain like, well, it was 50%, but I actually gave them all of these types of prompts or, and it was really helpful to use the rubric. And like you said, the functional piece with parents, which really started to click with me when, you know, I was using more functional communication profile, early functional communication profile, which are okay assessments to use with this population of students. That wasn't your standard score, Mm-hmm. that's still legally defensible. And I really felt like my parents sitting around the IEP table understood exactly where their child was or could say, oh yeah, I see that too at home. Mm-hmm. As opposed to maybe my students where I'm reporting out castle scores or owl scores. And I'm saying, oh, well, you know, they didn't use auxiliary verbs here, but they did here. They don't know what an auxiliary verb is. And truly, they don't care. They just want to hear where their kid is, what they can help them with. And they want to get to that, that meat of it. Exactly. And they can follow the rubric at home as well. It makes a lot of sense to them, you know, as opposed to, okay, their goal is they're working on, you know, 80% accuracy with WH questions. Well, that doesn't really make sense to a lot of parents. Like you said, because then the parents are thinking, well, I don't know, you know, what is 80%? But you can write it in a rubric way for them to understand. And like you said, just the reinventing the wheel is so helpful. And you mentioned this is your third point of 
data collection being attached to the IEP. So can you elaborate which rubrics play into that? Absolutely. How do you do that? And, you know, just elaborate a little bit more for us on that. Yeah. So anytime you use a rubric, basically anything that's not a percentage, you need to upload a copy of it and attach it to the IEP document itself. This way, it becomes part of that legal document. That means that if the student is to move, that goes with them because we're always like, well, what if they up and move to you know Georgia? What am I going to do? How do I get the file to this person? Because most of the time, we don't know until we start the school year. Oh, yeah, Johnny's not coming back. Oh, okay, he moved to Nebraska. That's great. Well, and then we have a file sitting in our drawer because they will get the files from the administrative office that just says, here's an IEP, and they will forward them the copy from the IEP program that your district uses. So we need to have that in there so that the next SLP who gets this goal, so we might assume they're not familiar with rubrics, they see your goal, but they see things listed out, they can see your previous data, and they can print out a copy of that rubric right from the IEP document and go and start moving into data collection right away. That way we can ensure the data is still being taken in a valid format because so everybody's got their own styles of kind of interpreting goals and skills and you know how you write for you, but we always have to write for somebody else is how we need to think about it. I'm like, I'm totally guilty of like, I'm getting tired and I'm like, it's, it's just this, we're just going to write this. And then I'm like, no, it makes sense to me. So I'll ask maybe another SLP that I work with. I'm like, can you read this for a second? Let me know. And if they're not repeating what I'm expecting, I'm like, okay, need to restructure this a bit. So always attach the rubric to the IEP. And then when you are doing, if you're doing annual reviews or anything like that, where you have data that is or can be presented in a graph form, upload that well to your document. So that way, again, it's in there as proof. So if they move, they can see what progress looked like more so than just the percent in their progress report, because that won't mean a whole lot. You're right. Thank you for that. And thank you for just explaining the, you know, actually physically attaching it, because I've gotten students that have come from out of district And I've had a hard time, you know, where they have maybe had a rubric and it wasn't there. So I think that is really helpful to attach it to the IEP and also make sure parents have a copy of the rubric as well, because that has happened where I've asked parents for information and parents actually had it. So that was really helpful when they've come from out of district. So thank you for that. All right, let's jump into your resources for us. (laughs) So obviously, I am very goal-oriented when it comes to speech therapy, which is hilarious because I hated math in school. Oh my gosh. Anything I could have done to get out of it, I would have. And here I am thinking about data collection and numbers and percentages. But I do have a pre-made rubrics in my TPT store for language and for social language that are already done for you. So a lot of the headache of where do I start? How do I do this? is done. They're editable. So you can, a lot of them just say student. You can go in and put in your student's name. You can tweak it for that specific skill or that specific child. And there's also an ebook in each one that explains how to write a rubric. So you can kind of get a crash course into how to actually do this for yourself. Maybe you have that 
you know, random skill. Maybe you have an AAC student and I don't have that particular skill set. This is going to teach you how to write it yourself. So I have that available and that is probably one of my absolute bestsellers. And I get emails every day from a speech pathologist just saying how this has really transformed how they support their kids and it gives them more freedom and they feel less stressed about data collection when it comes to it. So it's been just this automatic game changer. The other resource that I have to share is kind of what you mentioned before is Swivel Scheduler. So this is a web-based app. It's a fancy way of saying you can use it on any device. It is for data collection and therapy planning. We know we have mixed groups. You know, we'll kindly say you have a caseload of 40 kids. Each kid has four objectives. That's 160 goals to manage. And we know that those kids are not going to be in the same group, not on the same day, not on the same time. So to make sure everything gets worked on can be overwhelming. So this app, you put in your kids when you see them and their goals, and it automatically builds your schedule for you once you input when you see them. And it puts in their goal that they need to work on each day. You choose how often you want it to be consecutive, but every day you can look at your schedule and it will tell you the student, the time, the goal they need to work on. You can put in the activity, you can hyperlink an activity if it's a video or maybe a website and you can take data right there. Now this is for plus minus data. This is that tally data. You can track prompts, there's part for notes, but it will automatically graph everything for you. So you'll have your session baseline so that first day, so after you've written your goal and you have your baseline goal, it will give you that immediate, what is their baseline starting therapy? Their first session, their best, their highest score, and then an overall average. So that's the last thing you want to do with progress reports is sit with a calculator and try to calculate a percentage out of all the tally marks you made. This streamlines everything. So I can... If I'm just using Swivel Scheduler, I can write a progress report in five minutes. That is awesome. I love that it has the best day and then the average. That's amazing. I think that- And then I can take the graph and attach it to the IEP. Brilliant. Brilliant. That is awesome. And to have that, that visual for parents and for teachers and admin to see that, that's amazing. Especially when there's a trend line with it. A lot of times, you know, we see the dips and everything and that can get troubling. But when you can see a trend line, you can say, yes, I understand we had some low days, but look, we're still going up. That's very reassuring to parents when they, if they think that their child is starting to struggle again. That visual can be very comforting to know, okay, we're, we're still going the right way. And it's got all the notes for that goal attached to it automatically. So we can see, oh, this was a low day. But let's look at the note you made. Oh, it said he went home sick later on or he had sniffles or whatever the case may be. So everything's right there for you just to help take that off your shoulders. Yeah. And talk about legally dispensable. I mean, to have all of it right there on your laptop as you're in the meeting, you know, to show families or the report that you print out to show them. I mean, mm -hmm. that's huge. I have been in... The first place that I started, most of the kids ended up in our placements because of legally hot meetings mm -hmm. in the county. So the districts referred to us and most of them were because, you know, the district programs were not meeting the students' needs. So it was a great thing and a not so great thing at the same time. 
But I mean, I learned a lot and I really felt like it helped me be a stronger SLP because I'm like you, I hated math. I hated this type of thing. And it really kind of trained me to like, okay, what am I going to say when the advocate asks, how did they do on this particular day? You know, show me the data, show me your therapy notes. How many sessions did they come to? And it keeps track of all that. There's a session history with a breakdown of everything. So you can just print out the session history part for your notes or at the end of the year, whatever may have you. But you brought up a good part about an advocate. They, when parents seek that support, they want everything. And all they need to do is actually FOIA your data and they can have everything, including all the post-its and scribble. But that is very complicated at that point. This You can just print off, here's the days, here's the times, here's the data. And typically then they want visuals, they want things graphed. So it will save you a step. But more and more districts are expecting SLPs to graph their data for parents when it comes to annual reviews. I don't think they quite realize how unrealistic that is for caseloads. But, you know, kind of seems like a trend we follow sometimes, but that's still going to be an expectation for people. So I doubt anybody wants to sit in Excel and try and set up a graph for each separate kid. So this is just a way to streamline the therapy planning about what do I target? How often do I work on it? You know, can I take data on it? You can just tap and look and you can program it so it'll automatically put it in your schedule. You'll know weeks ahead of time. So it makes that, it just takes that stress away. And I think anything that can do that right now is a welcome addition to the profession. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was going to say in this working for county, we did have a really unfortunate event with one of the SLPs who was an older SLP and maybe, you know, was on her, she had post-it notes and that's how she took her data before she, you know, put it into the progress report. And it was a mess trying to get through her post-it notes. And she, it really, I learned through her mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so it made a huge thing. But back then, you know, it's not as web-based as it is now. And so, you know, I did keep my stacks of papers and it took so much time to file each student at the end of the day. And so this is amazing. If you're not using it, you need to use it. This is amazing. I love that it creates all of those things. It's been a game changer. (laughs) Yes, I can imagine. That is awesome. Okay, so we've talked about your rubrics and swivel scheduler. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about resource-wise? Resource-wise, some things to look out for. I do have a data collection and goal writing course in the works. So that will be coming out around Christmas time, hopefully Thanksgiving. But that is going to be a... Definitely a big resource, especially for people in their CFY, new grads, even veterans who just want to get a brush up on how things should look now, especially when we come to writing goals that are neurodiverse supportive. So all of those things, we want to try and make sure we're up to date. So that's what I'm hoping this is going to be available soon and we'll be able to do that. But I will have a part on my new website, which is getting updated, where people can send in questions. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And yeah, we definitely will be on the lookout. So how can people be on the lookout for your new course? What are some ways that they can reach out to you or follow you? 
The best ways would to be to join my email community. You can just go to the speechbubbleslp.com and click on the newsletter portion and you can sign up right there. And then you'll also get access to a freebie library. And then on Instagram, Facebook, my handle is the speechbubbleslp. And I kept it simple there. I send out messages and post sneak peeks all the time. And then you can always follow my store on Teachers Pay Teachers, which is the Speech Bubble SLP. Easy, easy, easy. Just, yeah, the Speech Bubble SLP. Awesome. All right. So we've talked about three things that we need to know. You've shared some awesome resources with us. What can we do tomorrow to become better goal writers? The first thing you can do is get your baseline. The second thing you can do is avoid goal smashing. Those two things alone will completely start to reshape it. And then make sure you're writing for the skill, not your plan. Awesome. Thank you. So as you've come to be this goal guru, do you have <laughs> any examples of maybe some some students or some IEPs that might have like shifted the way that you've conceptualized goals or how you've written goals that you can share with us? I think there's definitely been a few Early on, I would get goals from our early childhood center that would say, student will produce all age-appropriate sounds with 80% accuracy. And I would get this goal, and my first thought would be, how the heck am I going to track this? All these sounds? Oh, my gosh. And I would just you know, like get me a paper bag and start breathing right there. So getting those goals, that is like the you know, ultimate goal smash right there definitely brought my awareness to, okay, the next person who might get this, is this feasible for them? But is this going to be achievable for my student? And once I started thinking in that mindset of, is this achievable for my student? It really helped to shift where I focused and how specific my goals became. But then it kind of gave me that permission to stop being addicted to 80% accuracy so there, you know, if your student has a baseline of 20%, can they really make a jump to 80 in an IEP year? Probably not. So you've not only set them up for failure, you've set yourself up for failure. So when I see the goals like that, or I see students will answer WH questions with 80% accuracy, again, huge goal smash. There's five WH question types, five main ones at least. We would need to isolate each one, truly. And are they all 80%? Probably not. So it really opened my eyes to having to be specific, achievable for my students, and making sure that things are feasible within the school setting. We can't necessarily expect certain prompts and cues or unless you're training a TA to take data, transition to classroom, like can you track a certain goal across three settings if you're not there? Are you planning to meet the student at, you know, lunch on certain days? So, and just, just thinking what's realistic for yourself. A lot of those were those eye openers of, okay, I need to do better on my part to help trickle down and improve the rest of it. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. 
Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I, you know, thank you so much for saying, you know, what is achievable for our students? That was a huge mistake I made my first two years. And I think I really realized it like my second year with once that IEP was coming around and I was like, oh no, what was I thinking? You know, I was working with students with really complex communication needs and in grad school and my placements were always 80% or four out of five. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that's not achievable when kids are at the 10%, 20%, you know, moderate maximum to moderate prompting or model. And so then when it would come time for the IEP and I was saying, I had a couple at the beginning of the year where I was like, goal not met, goal not met, goal not met. And my administrators and my teachers and my parents are like, what, what do you do with them? Do you just play with them all day? Well, yeah, but no, but so I think that that is a really big, big thing for SLPs to remember is that you don't have to be a you know, strapped to that 80%. You don't have to be married to 80%. No, you don't. I think it's drilled into us in grad school because they say 80%, 80%. Obviously, we don't want to expect perfection because that's not realistic. But, you know, they... My professor equated it to, well, 80% is a B in school and a B is a passing grade and it's, you know, better than average. So we're going to shoot for a B. And in grad school, I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then... In the real world, and I'm just writing 80% because it's how my hand has become, you know, pre-programmed to do, but that wasn't what was realistic for my kids. And I have had to defend myself about why is this goal written for 20%? Well, their baseline was zero. That's why. So to expect a growth uh, to 80%, even 50% is not possible. You know, we're probably going to stretch it at 20. And if they blow it out of the water, fantastic. But we need to make sure our goal is achievable, but then a little smidge higher so that it is challenging. And like I said, some kids it's 20%, some kids it's 80, some kids it's 40, whatever it comes from their baseline. But I would also say to avoid being redundant in your goals, I get a lot of 80% in four out of five trials. And it's like, so it's 80% out of 80%. It reminds me of this scene from the movie Anchorman, and I'm probably showing my age here, where he's kind of, he's talking about a particular cologne and its effectiveness to help him find a date. And he's like, 30% of the time, it works all the time. And it's like, wait a minute. I'm like, I'm not great at math, but that doesn't add up. So we want to keep it simple for ourselves and be okay with, here's where my expectation is for the student. You have your data to back you up. So don't be afraid if somebody's like, that's too low. That's not, you know, you need to make it more challenging. You know, sit up straight and tall in your chair and be like, no, this is challenging and here's why. I'd love to see somebody argue with objective numbers and walk away with a win on it, you know, if they're going against you with it. So I think there's a lot to be said for standing our ground as well with our goals. You know, we are advocating for their communication and what we know is best. And despite what other people might think, they don't do our jobs. They don't know our jobs like we do. So, you know, we're just gonna be like, all right, it's gonna help them stay in their lane a little bit. And you have your numbers and you have your data to back you up. So then that way you shouldn't feel like you have to back down. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned something a little bit earlier when you were talking about goals and the idea of the conditions, you know, of, okay, is this going to happen in the speech room in a very structured activity? Is this going to happen at lunchtime? Is this going to be, because I have written goals where I have expected it across context, but I had a really good collaborative relationship with the teacher and they were going to be taking data for me Mm -hmm. or the instructional assistant who was in the classroom. But I had, we had talked about what that was going to look like. Right. But it's, I think that's such a important thing because I know I've sat in those meetings where the parent says, well, they don't do it 80% of the time at home or, you know, they're not answering what questions at home. Well, they're doing it with me because I have visual support for them. I'm showing them, you know, whatever it is. And I think that's important to include in your goal, those conditions as well, which you mentioned. We should be including them. Absolutely. You need to have your parameters So it's almost like a science experiment. Somebody who doesn't know it at all should be able to take it and duplicate it the exact same way. So that's why we don't want to get overly wordy and feel like we have to put in, you know, fancy words that are speechy because honestly, goals are written for parents to read and parents don't know auxiliary verb, subjective pronoun, like just put in is and are, you know, put it in a parenthesis. But we don't need those to sound, we're not trying to impress anybody there. They need to be just straightforward. If we do get in a situation, then we can bust out that vocabulary and impress them all with our genius. But, you know, your goal can be plain language. It does not mean that it is less professional. Absolutely. And that's something that I have felt really strongly about because my last district was a low socioeconomic, low education. And it was really important to me that the families felt empowered to be able to work on things at home. And they knew exactly what was happening in their student setting. And that was a power dynamic that I was uncomfortable with in our IEP meetings, where they would come in and you could feel, you know, the tension, not the tension, but just kind of maybe some of the shame or Mm -hmm. understanding some of the things. And so that was something that I really wanted to make sure that families were comfortable and knew what was going on, which is where we get the buy-in from them. So I really love that you brought up the point of just state it as is, you know, no need to be speechy and impressive. And I love that. So thank you. The other thing that you, because I wanted to talk about the conditions that you said that I thought was so great and so important for everyone, not even new grads. I mean, we were just talking about it today at work, the idea of standing your ground with goal writing, Mm -hmm. because we all talk, right? We all, the majority of us talk, I shouldn't say we all talk, but the majority of us talk, therefore parents sometimes think they know about talking or communicating more than we do. And so that can be really tricky when you might be writing a goal that might seem like it's low level. So what advice do you have for us when it comes to those types of situations? I think especially in these settings where, you know, parents aren't necessarily there. They're not there during your speech session unless, you know, you are in a clinic and there's a big window and they can watch. In a school environment, they're not there. The way that stories are presented, the way that classrooms are set up for learning and how things are supported is not the same as at home. So they might say, in the past, I had a student who had very complex language needs. They were in a self-contained room. They had a lot of support. 
And we had a goal that we were starting to to decide, does this student need, you know, what's the best AAC device for them? And so we were trialing a couple different things. But the parent was like, oh, yeah, they totally ask for this at home. And I asked him, like, do you think you could take a video so I can see what you're doing so that I can duplicate it? And when I saw the video she sent, she had, you know, unknowingly prompted this child at least nine times. And in her mind, the child did it. Like, so she did it. Yes, she can do that. But she didn't see the level of support. So when it came time for me writing the goal for, you know, requesting, you know, as we're moving towards this AAC support, the parent was very shocked that which they can do that. You know, this is really low. They do that at home. And one of the things I was able to talk about was, well, in this environment, our expectation is going to be that this student does this independently. And right now through my data here, they're unable to do so. And of course, she's talking about at home. Well, I can say at home, you you may be able to give her more support and in more ways than I can here. But I need to make sure this is set up for our school environment. And we can always cross in terms of things you're trying and what I'm trying. But I needed to make it clear that the environments were different, which then could make how we get this information different. Sometimes it's something we need to be delicate with. I've had families who say, oh, well, this student goes to Sunday school and they tell the whole story that they read in Sunday school. They say the whole thing back. But yet in a school setting, that's not what we see. Now, I have a son who's six. I totally see he does things at school that are not necessarily the same at home. So we do need to keep that open. But I know the expectation at school and if I do that at home and I see him use, having to use more supports, I know that's not the same, but I'm also a trained professional. Parents don't. So when they're arguing that case, that this is too low, that they can do it, we really need to just present that difference in the settings and the expectations in the settings. Because speaking from a school SLP standpoint, we are there to support their academics. And while academics should always be you know, generalized and taken home and worked on at home as well, home is in school. So we're working in, this, in an academic environment. And in this environment, this is how we're going to get them to be successful here. If they're already successful at home, that's great. We're hoping to bring more of that this way. And this is how we're going to do it with this goal. So it's just sometimes bringing in that tie-in and stating it's, it's not the same home in school. As much as we'd like it to be and how they do it isn't necessarily how our expectations for school. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for bringing in that education piece for parents and for helping them understand the difference between between the levels of support. I think that that's a huge thing that that we see. And that's something in my data collection that I really had to grow in is, oh yeah, they're doing it. Oh wait, how did I help them do it? You know? And that's where that rubric can help Yes, yes, absolutely. That was something that the Rubik really helped me get better at was that piece of data collection of what types of prompts, how many prompts I was providing for the student. I think before I started using rubrics, I wasn't quite catching that piece. Mm -hmm. And then you stress out about that piece because you're like, wait, did I prompt them on this? Did I cue them here? And then prompts and cues are different. So we need to be careful how we write them in our objectives. So It adds a whole nother layer to it all. It does. It does. And so I think that's where rubrics really were so valuable to me. Mm -hmm. Not even in 
I mean, it, it is so valuable, especially with social language goals and mm-hmm. narrative language pieces. But the prompting was really, really helpful for me. All right. We've covered quite a bit goal writing. I and a crash course in it all. Yes, it really has been a great crash course. And I like that we haven't even really dove into the SMART acronym when we've talked about it. I know. Yeah, I have so much to put into this course coming up. I'm like, all right, I got to organize it all. Yeah, it's awesome. It's so awesome that there's so much to think about when it comes to goals and just how important it is to write goals. I think we spend so much time thinking about our therapy that we don't often think about the goals that we're needing to work on. So let's just recap everything one more time. What are three things that we need to know when it comes to goal writing? You need to have your baseline. You need to make sure that you have your data documentation attached to your IEP. So that rubric is getting attached to the IEP so it can be finalized. And I'm starting to forget what my other one was now, but I can definitely add in one that not to goal smash for sure. Yes, not to goal smash. You talked about the skill, writing the goal for the skill and not the plan. Yes, writing the goal for your skill, not your plan, because we're not going to you know, work on matching for a year unless you are, and that's a whole different story. But we don't need to write a whole bunch of objectives. You just need to write for your skill and then you target the rest in therapy. Awesome. Thank you for that. All right. And then your resources that you have for us, can you recap those? I can. I have my social language and language rubrics in my Teachers Pay Teachers store, the Speech Bubble SLP. They do come in a bundle as an option. So if both are something you need, you can get them at a discount because we all love a good sale. And then I have Swivel Scheduler, which you can find online at swivelscheduler.com. It is a web-based app for data collection and therapy planning to take as much weight off your shoulders so that you can just focus on your kids and their progress and not focusing on taking tallies and analyzing data and spending too much time on things that, frankly, a computer can do for you. I love that. I absolutely love that. All right. And then our one actionable strategy that we can start doing tomorrow. Start taking baselines for your goals before you put them in the IEP. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, I think that that is so powerful. And the way that you keep coming back to it, this idea of taking baseline, it's something that we all do, but we don't think about it intentionally and purposefully, you know, we all come to an IEP or the preparation for an IEP and we think, okay, what are we going to do next with this kid? Oh, let me try this and see how he does. Or this seems like it's the next level thing. Let me see how he does with it. But then that data, using that data to really drive the goal, I think is so important. Instead of thinking, oh, this is definitely something that we should work on. It's okay. We know exactly where the student is with it and what level of prompts or cues they need for it. I think that that's really helpful. Something that you said for just the last few minutes, I know I'm kind of going off of a tangent here, but you talked about the difference between prompts and cues. Are you able to elaborate that? Because I think that's something that is a little messy for some SLPs as I've seen goals come across my desk. Yes. So yes, prompts and cues are different. 
a lot of the times people will put prompts and they mean a cue. So the difference is a prompt is a direct instruction and there's a prompting hierarchy that goes from complete, you know, hand over hand type of prompting to visual to verbal. So if I were to work on following directions and my student is you know, having a hard time, maybe I told them to point to the circle on the paper and it's full of a bunch of different shapes and they're not doing it. And I take my finger and I point to the circle. That's a prompt. I have given them a direct, here is what you do, support. A cue is a hint. So I might say, oh, let's look for the round shape on the page. I've given them a hint what to look for. I have not told them to look for the circle. I said, let's look for the round shape amongst all the other shapes to hopefully give them some support into what to do. Now, when you're writing a goal, and a lot of this, some people say, oh, it's too nitpicky. A lot of it boils down to making the goal legally defensible. And some people might say, oh, it's, you know, being overly cautious or, you know, like you need to just chill here. It's not that big of a deal. And for the majority of your career, it won't be. But you write it for the what if, because it's only that one particular instance where the case gets taken to due process. And the job of that educational attorney is not to be your friend. It is to absolutely dissect everything you have done because they're there for the parent. And if they ask you about this goal and they may say, okay, you have here that you are going to give them an additional cue for this. What does that look like? And the way you present it is a prompt. Well, they're going to say your data is invalid because that's not what was written. So we need to make sure you are either writing for prompt, for cue, or if you are like, hey, I don't know what my kid is going to need in the moment, you can do prompt slash cue and then stipulate how many extra they're needing after that initial presentation. That's typically how I write it, just because I don't know what's going to fit my students. Sometimes prompts work. Sometimes as they get higher towards achieving that goal, I want to back off and give them cues instead to not be so direct. So it is important to understand the difference. Like I said, there is a prompting hierarchy that is followed. We see that a lot for like AAC. When we're trying to like phase out and go towards independence, we always want to go from a least to most type of presentation with it. So, And that's just visual and verbal are like the top two where we're just going to just hands off. Gestural comes in and then that's even broken down into levels. But We do need to be aware of the difference so that we can follow it. And then when you're writing your goal, like I said, I write prompt slash cue in there just to give myself the option. So that way also, if I'm ever in a situation where I need to discuss it in that legal setting, I can give an example for both and the validity of my goal is still intact. Thank you. I think that's really important to delineate because of the what if situations. And you never know when a situation will become what if. I think that's really important. That was something that we had a a couple of sticky situations in my last district. And our legal team actually met with all the SLPs and special ed teachers and said, you need to start thinking about this because it was something that came up in court. So when you mentioned it, I thought, let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. So thank you. But it can make a big difference. And especially in... You know, if you're in a court case in a district and your goal gets totally washed out because of it, that's not going to be good. You can be the difference between winning and losing a case. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's like you said, you know, you never know with the what if situations. And it is important just in the communication of of the goals of if I inherit your kid, I want to know how is the student supposed to perform by the end of the year? You know, and I want to make sure that that I'm keeping data, even if the student, like you said, you know, even if the student, if the goal was written for a visual cue or a, a verbal cue, but they're still relying on prompting, then I need to know that they didn't meet that goal by the end of the year. I think that's really important. Well, thank you so much, Maureen. I really enjoyed nerding out over goal writing. I was just saying, thank you for letting me nerd out. Yes, it was awesome. I mean, you truly are a goal guru. I really (laughs) love the way that you have deeply thought about all of these things. To make it easier, you know, your rubrics are brilliant. The way that you communicated how to use the rubric is so helpful. I really hope that you have some new rubric customers now. I hope so too. And if people have questions about them, they again can reach me at my email, thespeechbubbleslp at gmail.com. I answer rubric questions easily every single day. So don't be shy to send questions my way. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And thank you everyone for joining us today. We hope to see you back here or hope to have you listen back here soon. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.